Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to speak your word and for each person who is here in this place. Give us ears to hear what you want to say in Christ's name and for his glory alone, I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, of course, today um, we are celebrating the fact that, that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He raised Jesus to new and unending life. And um, I would like to talk about the new life that Jesus continues to give us today. You know, we say Christ is risen. And then you say... <laughs> we say Christ is risen, not Christ has been risen. Because Christ is alive today. That's what we, we confess. And there's great significance in this that Christ gives us, because he's present, new life. You know, there's lots of ways that people uh, try to make a change, try to pursue new life. And one of the ways in American culture, kind of a persistent way, is through the way of, of self-improvement. Like you... you kind of hold up the best version of who you think you can be, and then you set goals and you try to pursue that best version of yourself. And that's been something that's part of the American culture for a very long time. And now we have technology to help us track our goals, to see how we're making progress. So this smartwatch I, smartwatch I have he either encourages me or shames me based on whether or not I've closed these rings, that I've, these are my targets, and and then my little guy, Sam, sometimes at night he'll look at my watch and be, Dad, you didn't close all your rings. So he's getting in on the act. But that, that's just part of our American culture, isn't it? Like we, we hold up this best version of ourselves and we set our goals and, and we pursue them. But, you know, there's, one, there's a, a British uh, journalist who's written about this self-obsession that our culture kind of foments, <laughs> create, cultivates. And he said, you know, he's looking at the, the dark side of this. It, you know, if, if it becomes such an obsession and is carried too far, it can be dangerous. He said in one of his writings, uh, we are living in an age of perfectionism and people are suffering. Tortured by a fantasy, they are failing to become. We see that especially with young people today. The increase in anxiety and depression. They have this image of who they want to be. They see these images online. And when they don't meet that, well, the message is, if you don't achieve, it's your fault. You're on your own. You know, if you're not your best self, if you're not attaining this perfect goal, then it's all on you. And friends, that's not really good news. It's all on you. Christianity, of course, offers something different. And that is, look at what God has done for you and receive that. Receive the new life that only God can give you. It's not become your best self through yourself. It's become who God has called you to be through God's help, through the help of the risen Christ. And so I want us to think about the, the new life that Jesus has given us and the new life that Jesus offers us. And we can look at Romans chapter 8 where the Apostle Paul talks about this. Now we remember that Paul, his life was dramatically changed, according to his own testimony, when he encountered the risen Christ. He was given new life, a new direction in life. 
And then God called him to be this great missionary, and he raised up Christians throughout uh, the, the Roman world in those days and wrote letters to them to strengthen them. And that's what we have in Romans, this great letter, one of the greatest letters that Paul ever penned. And here we get to one of the greatest chapters that Paul ever penned, Romans 8. And he talks here about the new life that Christ gives us. And it starts with this. It starts with these words, no condemnation. Therefore, he says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that word condemnation, it means worthy of punishment under the law. Imagine if you were on trial. Not that this would happen to any of you good folks, but imagine that you were convicted of a crime and actually you committed the crime and you know you were guilty. And so as the, the, the trial is, is winding down to the last day, you're getting ready to hear the verdict. The judge has handed the piece of paper from the jury and you're ready to hear those fateful words. And you've been thinking about what life is going to be like in prison for the rest of your life. And so you brace yourself for that. And the judge takes the piece of paper and he says, not guilty, not condemned. You've just been given new life. And that's what Paul says, God gives those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. Under God's sentence, under God's law, even though we are guilty, we're not condemned. All of us have sinned. We all fail to meet God's perfect standard. We are to love God with all of our heart, all that we are. But we fail to do that. We're to practice the golden rule to treat others the way we want to be treated, to, to love our neighbors, Jesus says, as ourselves. But we fail to do that too. We don't love our spouses like we should. I don't want to see anybody giving the elbow here. We don't love our children like we should. We don't love our friends as we love ourselves or our neighbors. So we fall short. If we're honest with ourselves, we fall short of the law of God. But God does not leave us in this state of guilt and condemnation. The verdict for those who are in Christ, Paul says, is no condemnation. You're not going to get what you deserve. And why is that? Well, because of what God has done for us. Paul explains that in verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law tells us what we ought to do. The flesh makes it impossible for us to do it perfectly. The flesh is our sinful nature. And so what does God do? Well, because he loves us, he provides a way for us not to be condemned. And here's what he does. Here's the great mercy of God. Here is the love of God for you. Here is the mercy of God for sinners like me and you. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Kind of confusing, isn't it? But what Paul is saying here in this verse, if we, if we take some time to understand it what, it, what it really means simply is this. Jesus, who was not a sinner, he was in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he was not a sinner. He was condemned for that sin, the sin that we have committed. And in other words, he took the place on the cross for us. 
He took the nails in His hands. He took the nails in His feet on Calvary for you and for me. He died for sin, Paul says. So, for sin there means a sin offering. He died the death that we deserve. And so, let's remember today why we have this sentence of no condemnation if we're in Christ. It's because of what God has done for us in Christ. It's not because we've tried to be a good person and we've achieved a certain level of goodness and then God says, okay, now you're good enough, not condemned. Or you've done enough religious activity, okay, I'm seeing how many times you've been to church, not condemned. No, we can never reach God's standard of perfect holiness through ourselves. Even our good works are tainted with selfishness and sin. Even when we carry out righteous things, we don't always do it with righteous thoughts. Our heart is not always pure. Wouldn't it be awful if we could see each other sometimes on Sunday morning? We're not condemned because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. No, there was a man I read about, the first man in U.S. history who was exonerated by DNA evidence. He had been convicted of a just an awful, brutal, heinous crime. And, of course, he knew he was not guilty, but the whole trial was a mess and the evidence was sketchy and, and he ended up in prison. First, he ended up condemned to death and then they changed his sentence to two consecutive life sentences in prison. He was a condemned man in prison. But he was the first man in the United States to be exonerated by DNA evidence. And when he got the call, the, the book describes this, when he got the call, he's listening to his lawyer, he's on the phone, and the, the lawyer said to him, you've been proven innocent, there's no way that you committed this crime. It says he dropped the phone, he jumped up, he raised his hand like he had scored a touchdown, tears were streaming down his faces, and he was running around to all the prisoners saying, it's over, it's over, not condemned. He was given new life. And that's how it is. With, if we could see what God in, in heaven, I think we will understand this. How the verdict that God has given us, no condemnation. How amazing that in, we, is. We, we will shout and scream and probably cry too. It's an amazing thing that God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And yet we, unlike that man, we are guilty. But we've been given this verdict, no condemnation. So, that's where this new life starts. And I want to know today if you have that assurance that when you stand before God after this life, that you'll hear that verdict. That you'll know that you're right with God. I want to know if today you have peace with God. Because that's what God offers you today in Christ. And if you have that peace, let's rejoice and praise God for it. So it begins with that word, no condemnation, but then this new life leads to a new way of living. It leads to, a, leads to a new mindset that Paul talks about. And he says that there are just two ways to live, just two ways, either life in the spirit or life in the flesh. And life in the flesh here doesn't mean life in the body, but it, but it means basically a life without God, a life apart from God, a life that's not concerned with the things of God. In fact, he says, you don't have a desire to please God. If you are in the flesh, that is not what you're living for. It's a life that's focused on the things of this world. It's focused on pleasure, on comfort, on 
attainment, on success, on money, on prominence. It's a life that's focused on the praise of other people rather than living for the glory of God. And I think all of us who have even who are in the Christian life, even us, probably most of us here, can look back at seasons in our life where we were like, yeah, I was living more like that. I certainly can. I can look at times in my life where I was moving away from life in the Spirit, pursuing the things of the flesh. But God in His mercy, He calls us back, doesn't He? Anybody here have a testimony like that? Well, Paul says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. And one writer puts it very succinctly when he says, Why do people hate God's will? Because it's not their will. That's the heart of man apart from the grace of God. That's my heart apart from God's grace. There's a resistance there. There's a rebellion there. You know, if we look at our world today and we see how messed up it is, We read about the violence and the hatred throughout the world. We look at the war in Ukraine. We look at addictions today. We look at abuse. We look at broken homes. We look at the pain that we have suffered and the pain that we have inflicted on other people. As we think about the the kind of the lack of compassion that we might see in our world today and kind of the hard-heartedness. I read last week there was a man who was stabbed in a major city in the United States. Maybe you saw this story. He was stabbed and um, he went stumbling around showing some people, I don't know how many people, his wounds, looking for help. Nobody helped. He died on the streets. Well, he died, he fell, and then they took him to the hospital and he died. I've read a couple of stories like that now. There's a hard-heartedness in the hearts of many people today. Why is that? Where's that coming from? Paul would say, it's the flesh. It's a life of self-centeredness. It's a life not living for the glory of God. But the good news is that Jesus gives us new life. And he changes our heart by his spirit. Those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So the mindset begins to change as the new life comes in. I read a testimony of a man named Glenn, Glenn Pearson, who was uh, the executive vice president of a hospital system. A successful man who had a successful, happy marriage for decades. But that's not how he... How he was raised was... By an abusive father. And this father um, was one of these fathers who would withdraw presents from his children. If his children didn't please him, there would be no Christmas presents under the tree. And his father would call Glenn an idiot. His nickname for him was Idiot Child. And at 12, when Glenn was 12, the father left the family for another woman. Left the mom and the children. And so that's how Glenn was raised. And Glenn said in this testimony, I had no examples of healthy men in our family at all. None of my uncles or cousins. They were all addicts, alcoholics. Uh, They were angry, vengeful men. So what kind of man did Glenn turn out to be? What do you think? When he went to college, 
He was an angry man. He was a vengeful man. And he didn't let anybody, he didn't put up with anything from anybody. He was one of those kind of hot-tempered men. And he got into conflicts with his roommates. And over the smallest little slight, he wanted to fight. But then something happened to him. In college, he had a friend who led a Bible study. He decided, even though he thought the Bible was a collection of fairy tales, that he would go and listen. And something about the figure of Jesus began to grip him. And he began to imagine, maybe I don't have to live this way. And maybe there is something to Jesus. And so he asked the Lord to come into his life. And his mindset began to change. That was in college. And now... Fast forward to the end of his career and he's in the counselor's office and he's telling this counselor about how he was raised and, and, and what his family system was like. And his counselor, after weeks of hearing this man's story, he said, Glenn, there's no rational explanation for you. He said, you should be, in my professional opinion, you should, be, you should have been divorced multiple times. You should have been addicted to something to help you cope. And you should be an angry, abusive man. The fact that you're none of those things is a testimony to the grace of God. What happened to Glenn was the new life of Christ came into his life. You see? And, and oftentimes on Easter, and I've done this in the past and I'll do it in the future, we talk about evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Historical evidence. And we lay that out. And I'm happy to do that. I've done it before and I'll do it again. But there's another kind of evidence, friends. It's changed lives. It's changed lives by the risen Christ. And although we're not perfect as a church community, if you hang around with us long enough, you'll see that we're not perfect. There's warts, all kinds of problems. But also you'll hear testimony of people, how their life has been changed by the risen Christ. And there'll be things that you see in the lives of each other. So why are they acting this way? Where's that coming from? Where's that love? Where's that compassion? Where's that sensitivity come? It's the Spirit of God. This is the life that Christ gives us, the new life. And so it starts with this word, no condemnation. It, it grows through life in the Spirit. And then Paul says, it defeats death. This life that Jesus offers us defeats death. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. The same Spirit, that is the Spirit of God, Paul says. If you're united to Christ, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead or raised Him from the dead will raise you. When the women came to the tomb, the angel said, He is risen. The tomb was empty. The stone was rolled away. Not so Jesus could get out. He was already out so they could go in and see the tomb was empty. I really believe that there would be no Christianity without the resurrection. I don't see how Christianity makes it without the resurrection of Jesus. I believe that he would have been another failed Messiah. There were other people who claimed to be the Messiah. I also believe that based on the fact that there were tens of thousands of people crucified in Roman times. One expert said there were, he gave this estimate, and I can give you the source sometime if you're interested, but it's a guy named John Cook. 
500-page book on the crucifixion in the Mediterranean world, and he said his estimate it was a conservative estimate that there were 30,000 victims of crucifixion in the Roman world. We don't remember any of their names, except this one name, Jesus. He defeated death by the power of God. God raised him from the dead. And Paul says, if you belong to Jesus by faith, then this same power will raise your mortal bodies. It's difficult to believe this sometimes. Let's be honest. We walk, as Christians, we're called to walk by faith, not by sight. But we live in this world of sight. We don't see dead people being raised to life. Although, in some parts of the world, they have seen that. But Jesus was raised to new and unending life. It can be difficult for us to believe. It was difficult for the disciples to believe. Even when they saw Jesus, they weren't sure it was Jesus after he died. They still struggled with belief. But friends, let's remember who God is. God is the creator of all things. If you believe in God, then you should understand it's no problem for God to raise the dead. It's as easy as us blinking our eyes or lifting our pinky fingers. I mean, it's easier for God. God is all-powerful. God is the creator and sustainer of all things. And so we can trust what Paul has said here. That because Jesus was raised from the grave, the tomb is not a terminal condition. It's not the end of the story. And Paul says, and this is my final point here, that this life is a life of peace. That, that those who walk by the Spirit and set their minds on the thing of the Spirit have life and peace. And so I just want to remind you of the peace that Jesus offers today and ask you, are you walking in that peace? Do you have that peace? Do you know that you're right with God? Do you have peace with God? That after this life, when you stand before God, you will hear the verdict, no condemnation. You can have that peace today as you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Are you walking in the peace of the Lord? You know, in Christianity, peace is not a product of some technique like meditation or a mantra. It's not a a trick of the mind. Peace in Christianity, friends, is a person. The person of Jesus. Because he is alive, he comes to us in his presence and with his promises. Peace is not the absence of problems or suffering. Peace is the person of Jesus who comes to us in the midst of our pain and our suffering and offers hope by his presence and with his promises. And this is a great promise. That God who raised Jesus from the dead will raise your mortal bodies too as you're united by faith in him. The same spirit, the spirit of life that dwells in Jesus dwells in you if you have faith in Him. You can't get that from yourself. It's got to come from God. And He is the one who gives it to us in the risen Christ. Let's pray. I do want to ask that question. If there's somebody here who doesn't have peace, doesn't know the peace of God, The peace that says I'm right with God in spite of what I've done because of what God has done in Jesus. I want to pray for you if you 
would like to receive this offer that Jesus gives. And you can just say a prayer like this silently or think about it and pray it later. There's nothing magical about the words, but it's the faith in the promises of God that those who confess their sins and believe in their heart that Jesus rose from the dead and died for their sins will be given this new life. This new life will come in. So you could just pray something like this. Lord, I admit that I have sinned. I confess to you my need to be forgiven. I look to the cross of Christ and I trust as, as best as I now know that he died for me and was raised for my life. I put my faith in him and I ask that your spirit would come into my life and give me a fresh start. And if you prayed something like that, or you're interested in praying something like that, I would love to talk to you to help you grow in the Christian life. Let me also pray for all of us, no matter where we're at spiritually, and those of us who've been walking with the Lord for a long time, we need a fresh realization of the life of Christ. And so let's pray together. Lord, I pray for everyone here. You know the pain and the suffering, the doubts and the questions that they are wrestling with. Would you come to them as they turn to you with your peace that passes understanding? Will you help us to cling to your promises and to trust that you are with us even in dark times and valleys of shadow of death? And because of that, we can have hope. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.